You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. She's got the news. She talks with newsmakers. She encourages us to laugh, and she cries with us. Speaking truth to power and questioning authority daily, it's the Nicole Sandler Show. All right. Uh, it is a Marcy Wheeler Wednesday and no time to spare. So we're going to jump right in. Take it away. Nicole and Marcy, here we go. As always, I'm very, I'm honored to welcome back to the show Marcy Wheeler. She's an independent journalist. She covers what's happening here in uh, the far reaches of government better than anyone else I know. And she does it at EmptyWheel.net. That's a site you should be going to uh, regularly. I've got to fix our shot here. And, um, uh, and also, just so you know, Marcy you know, works on her own. Uh, she is listener supported, just like this show is. And so please go to emptywheel.net and support her work because it is uh, vital to our democracy. Hey, Marcy, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm, you know, hanging in there. Another day. Uh, you know, I was noticing today is the first day of Black History Month. And uh, it comes at a time when we are. Uh, seeing the funeral of another black man who was beaten to death by cops. It also comes at a day that the college board gave in to demands from Florida's fascist governor, Ron DeSantis, to um, pull back on this new advanced placement African-American studies curriculum. Uh, it's scary times here in the U.S., but not only here, it's around the world, apparently, too. Um, but you've been concentrating on the goings-on in Congress, as the new Congress is coming together with the investigations into January 6th uh, and uh, the investigations into the former president. I don't know how you keep it all straight. Do you, how do you set your priorities on what you're going to cover on a given day? Good question. Uh, often I set out with a goal to get like longer term work done and it doesn't end up that way. I end up getting distracted by something that seems more urgent. So just as an example, like all of us who are covering January 6th, know that there are all these January 6th transcripts out there that need to go back, you know, that are worth reading. And, and I've sort of got an approach by which I've, I've decided to tackle them. Um, you know, first I went to the ones where there were suspect lawyers, 
And then I've been trying to keep up with witnesses that we know are testifying before Jack Smith's committee or Jack Smith's grand juries. Um, but then, of course, things get distracting, like either some new legal case or some uh, developments in the existing legal cases. I mean, you know, the Proud Boys case is going on. And um, while there are a few people who are doing tremendous coverage of it day to day, it got it, it is, in my view, anyway, getting far less coverage than the Oath Keepers trial, even though it's far, far more important and, and far more critically important to tying Trump to the crime scene. Um, and so I think that we're just overwhelmed and, you know, a big part of the press is chasing the Biden classified stories and whatever James Comer wants to say about Hunter Biden's dick pics. And so that's where we are. And in fact, James Comer, who's the new chair of the House uh, Oversight Committee, uh, unbelievably, um, his first order of business was to deal with um, nothing of national importance, right? What 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 did he start his his first uh, uh, hearing on? Well, next week, I think it's next week, uh, or maybe the eighth. Um, there are going to be oh, that is next week. Um, <laughs> um, three former Twitter employees are supposed to come testify before the committee. And when he announced it, he said, "We are going to investigate the suppression of stuff pertaining to Hunter Biden." And the only new news in the Twitter files that he's responding to, the only new news, period, is that uh, Democrats asked Twitter to suppress some non-consensual dick pics from Hunter Biden, um, some of which were part of a campaign from uh, Steve Bannon associate Guo Wenzhong, and those both of things, both of which things violate the terms of service. And um, uh, and so that's the only new news. That's that is the that, you know, by definition, by his announcement, that is the topic of what this hearing is going to cover next week. (laughs) So that's the first first bit of order, bit of business by the new House Oversight Committee, Hunter Biden's dick pics and why they were suppressed on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, of course, they're going to complain that the Hunter, the Hunter Biden laptop was also not published on Twitter. But it's but it's um, but even there, like if you look at the Twitter files, what Matt Taibbi and his ilk are doing is is, you know, they're they're insane. Um, you know, they're, they're saying there was nothing that Twitter was told that pertained to the uh, laptop. But then they reveal months later that um, that the FBI shared the alerts about Andre Durkacz, who is the person who was dealing dirt on Hunter Biden in 2019 with Rudy Giuliani. So it's like, well, of course, Twitter had, you know, aside from like all the public's all the public stuff about um, Burisma being hacked and about Rudy's other efforts to get dirt on on Joe Biden, you know, um, there was stuff uh, there, you know. There was plenty of stuff. And and part of the problem is that Matt Taibbi doesn't recognize it. The, the whole Matt Taibbi rabbit hole is another one we can go down or choose not to. And frankly, I've stayed away. I I don't understand. So they're still releasing these so-called Twitter file reports or whatever. I, I just I had to back away from it because I, I don't understand what they're doing, frankly. 
and I and I didn't want to waste the time trying to figure it out because it seems like they've got an agenda. Um, and yet all we hear about is the, the left wing agenda. So. All right. So that's where Congress is now. Now, you mentioned Jack Smith. Of course, Jack Smith, the special counsel who's now tasked with looking into um, the the Trump stuff, right? Merrick Garland turned everything over to him. Tell us what Jack Smith is focusing on right now. Do we know? Um, okay, so we know that there is um, that, that um, starting, I think, even before he came on board, DOJ was trying to hold Trump accountable to his claims that there were no more documents. They believe there are more documents. There are 46 empty classified documents folders. Uh, Trump presented some people who claimed we've done a search. There are no more documents. They haven't even searched uh, all of his U.S.-based properties. For example, they haven't searched National Golf Course. And we know that Trump flew, you know, after the investigation was over, the first place Trump went from Bedminster, where he'd flown uh, when they did the search, was to National Golf Course. They have not, as far as we know, did a search of that. They have not, as far as we know, um, it's unclear the extent of a search of Trump Tower. They have not done a search of Doral. They have not done a search of the Westchester property where the, you know, the, the kids have mm-hmm. um, turned into a tax haven. And, and those are the U.S.-based properties. So... Um, so Smith has been trying to get Trump in a place where if there are more documents, somebody will go to the jail or better yet, uh, he can start holding people in contempt for not actually doing a competent search for the documents. So that's one piece. Another piece, uh, and this is a really important detail that Kyle Cheney from, um, from Politico just revealed that, um, that, since August, when DOJ seized Scott Perry's phone, they have been fighting to get into the phone. Right. And there is a very active debate. It's going to be briefed. And then there will be hearing later this month, later in February, about whether speech and debate will protect his phone. Beryl Howell, the chief judge in D.C., ruled that it did not, ruled that it that, the, that there was probable cause to get beyond speech and debate protection for example, we know DOJ will have materials that don't pertain at all to his role as a member of Congress, um, and it is being it is being reviewed by a panel that includes Naomi Rao, who is a terrible Trump appointee, Greg Katzess, who is a very conservative former Trump White House official, and another I believe the third is a, another conservative judge. So we should expect a bad ruling on that, and then that. You know, and if that happens, then DOJ will appeal to the full panel. And if that, you know, if they get the phone then, then Scott Perry will appeal to the Supreme Court. Importantly, Hakeem Jeffries is backing that challenge because that is what Congress traditionally does. And and the reason this is important, and, and this is something I wrote over the over the holiday, it's like um, I think people don't really understand the complexities of investigating this. It's easy to say, here's what we know happened. Right. Here's what we know that the press has reported on. But that's different than getting evidence that you can admit into court. And there are, I showed, not counting Christina Bob, there are 25 people who are either known important witnesses to this case or are 
key subjects of the investigation, people like Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman, who we know are actually being investigated themselves. And that means that at every stage, uh, DOJ has to either find a way to get the materials without, you know, seizing the phone, which they did for Rudy, they did for John Eastman, they did for Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Clark. Um, but for all the other lawyers, they have to find some other way to get to the material. And in the case of Jeffrey Clark, remember, that's the former DOJ official who was going to take over DOJ so that right. they could get involved in Georgia. In the case of him and another lawyer that fewer people have heard of, a guy by the name of um, Ken Kuklowski, who is probably really important, to get to their content, DOJ first picked the stuff from Scott Perry. They said, like, Give us all the stuff that re- relates to Scott Perry because we know he was involved and he's not a lawyer and he's not Trump and therefore we know that that's not privileged. Um, and now DOJ is trying to flip it to get to Scott Perry's phone. It's taken five months so far. We should expect another at least two months. Um, and and so this is the kind of thing that takes a lot of time. Um, some of the other things we know that DOJ has been that that uh, Smith has been doing, and and I should interject here. During the summer, everyone, there was a lot of contention. Um, the judicial, the January 6th committee was so angry that DOJ, let me take two steps back. First okay. of all, the January 6th committee spent a lot of time attacking DOJ because they did not uh, act more quickly on the contempt referrals, right? Right. And, and January 6th committee only referred four people for contempt. It was Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, um, uh, Scavino, Dan Scavino, and Mark Meadows, three of whom were, at the time that they were involved in January 6th, were still, you know, top White, White House officials. Right. Um, the January 6th Commission Committee did not, for example, refer Cindy Chafian. And she's somebody, she's an organizer who has ties to Alex Jones. Uh, she, she's a key organizer, right? Key organizer for January 6th. As, as far as I understand it, she also blew off the committee entirely, but they didn't refer her for contempt. They only referred the hard cases for contempt. Um, when Brazil was attacked, when, when the government of Brazil was attacked, um, uh, everyone was like, you know, they're arresting people immediately. Why, you know, why is Steve Bannon out there to be interfering with, with Brazil mm-hmm. when, and, and I pointed out that had, Bannon been sent to prison immediately upon being uh, upon being convicted last summer, which would have been a, a four month sentence, which is actually a pretty decent sentence, particularly from a, a Trump appointee. Um, he would have been free right. in plenty of time to interfere in Brazil. Had he be had he been sent to prison immediately upon being sentenced in I want to say October, he would have been almost free in time to interfere in Brazil. And, and besides the fact people, inter, you know, like the, the January Sixers are interfering from prison all the time. And so this notion that contempt was ever going to be a solution to these things is just farcical. And even in the case of Peter Navarro um, and, and Trump invoked privilege with, in a way with, with Meadows and Scavino that he did not with Navarro, which is why DOJ went forward with Navarro, even in, even with Navarro, his trial, which was supposed to be going on as we speak, got got deferred until March to, to, to deal with this question of how senior officials like him are treated by by the government. Wow. And so um, none of that is that surprising. But 
it's one way of saying that all the complaints that the January 6th committee had last summer were sort of, I think they really simplified the problem. They said, oh, you know, it'll be a snap of our fingers if we refer Steve Bannon, things will get better. That was never, ever realistic. More importantly, at that same time, and I think partly in response to the fact that these contempt referrals were not being responded to more quickly, DIJ was refusing to share its transcripts. Right. And I wrote a post in June. Uh, very explicitly, I said, DOJ needs these transcripts very soon because if they get, um, and I named this guy, Jeremy Bettino, he's a senior proud boy, he, uh, in October, but he had already testified to the January 6th committee. Right. So now, testifies now, to January 6th. Now, I, I need to interrupt because you said that DOJ refused to share the transcripts. Oh, you mean the January 6th January committee 6th refused to give what the DOJ, okay, got it. And DOJ kept saying, we urgently need these, we urgently need these, and they were making no headway. Um, And so in June, I said, you know, DOJ needs needs the Bertino transcript, because if they find something in that Bertino transcript on the eve of trial, it could seriously undermine the trial. Right. Um, After I said that, Bertino flipped, became a cooperating witness. DOJ, as far as I can tell, only got that transcript uh, around October, uh, around December 8th. They provided them to... The defendants around December 8th, they were required to, to provide them almost immediately upon getting them themselves. So they got them ahead of time, but they didn't get them far. I mean, they, they didn't get them more than a month ahead of the trial. And they really only got them like a week before the jury selection started. And in that transcript, it revealed that Bertino had been briefly represented by uh, Joe Biggs's attorney. And so literally the day that the trial was starting, DOJ is dealing with the fact that one of their key cooperating witnesses said important things to Joe Biggs's attorney. And Joe Biggs's other attorney is Norm Pattis, who was being disqualified by the state of Connecticut. So in other words, it was exactly as I predicted. Like I said, you know, if you hold off on the Jeremy Bertino transcript, things are going to go haywire. Things went haywire. There should be a lot of outrage that that happened. And and then more importantly, when you look at it, um, there are other things that you see in the transcripts. For example, this Ken Kukowski guy that I told yeah. you about, he wrote a really important, he wrote one of the first drafts of the uh, alternate, uh, alternate um, elector scheme. Okay. Is that right? The alternate elector yeah. scheme. Yeah. Sorry. He, went, he wrote one of the first drafts of the Pence scheme. He did so at the behest of Jeffrey Clark, whom he was reporting to at DOJ. So he, you know, and um, and he testified willingly the first time and and answered the questions that they knew about. And then subsequent to that, the, the January 6th committee uh, got by doing the effort of, of getting to privileged materials from John Eastman. They got to some John Eastman emails and they showed that Ken Klukowski was involved in ways that enti- were entirely different than he had represented at the first interview, they brought him back for a second interview. The second interview, there's a lot of really damning stuff. Um, his lawyer starts saying, you know, you can't make us invoke privilege under oath. It's not fair. Um, and though that's one example. Another example is this guy, Alex Cannon. Same thing. He was a lawyer who, uh, when January 6th committee first interviewed him, believed that he was just a lawyer who recognized where Rudy Giuliani was going and got the heck out. Mm-hmm. But then after Cassidy Hutchinson testified and described uh, a- alleged interference in her testimony, then it became clear that Alex Cannon was not just the person who arranged for her lawyer, 
her lawyer who's now himself uh, under a cloud, but um, but was involved in trying to find her a job. So Alex Cannon, who Maggie Haberman had said is the hero of the documents case and the January 6th committee presented as somebody who very reasonably um, thought Rudy's claims of fraud were bogus, turns out to be somebody who's still involved with Trump, getting money from Trump's PAC, you know, which is another thing now under investigation, and um, and might have been involved in the effort to obstruct with Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And so those multiple, these are the kinds of things that these that these transcripts will give DOJ as a tool. And there was no reason to delay. There certainly there was no reason. I mean, one reason I think that the January 6th committee withheld them is because they really wanted the focus to be entirely on Trump. Mm-hmm. And when you look at these transcripts, it's clear that some of the people they turned, they did, they kind of pitched as a cinematographer, cinematic hero, like Eric Hirschman, the right. guy who makes me look like, you know, a, a you know, polite mouth person. <laughs> um, he acted, he also, he also, like his, his testimony, um, th- there's reason to believe that the reason Cassidy Hutchinson's lawyer was directing her testimony in certain directions was not to protect Trump, but to protect Hirschman. Oh, wow. And Hirschman, I did a post on this. Hirschman, when he did testify, (laughs) virtually the only thing he remembered besides yelling at Sidney Powell, yelling at um, Jenna Ellis and yelling at another Trump lawyer, uh, John Eastman. Like he, you know, he got a lot of press for saying to John Eastman, you know, you better get a criminal defense attorney. Um, The only thing he remembered was writing a note to Trump asking him to call off the mob. Well, Cassidy Hutchinson testified she wrote it. Oh. Oh, yeah, Eric Hirschman, for those who don't remember, during the that we saw the tape depositions during the January 6th hearings, he was the guy with the weird backdrop. I, uh, to me, it looked like he was in the bathroom. His artwork on the wall looked like shower knobs and there was like a panda just I, always distracted by the background. But that's Eric Hirschman, who's gotten a lot of attention. Um, and yet, now we're hearing all these conflicting stories, obviously. And again, I don't know how you keep it straight. We're speaking with Marcy Wheeler, who writes about all this at emptywheel.net. So, all right. So as you mentioned, the Oath Keeper trial, there were two, weren't there, that that concluded? And now the Proud Boys is is still being heard? Where are we on those cases? Yeah. So the Proud Boy actual trial started um, I want to say the first week of January. So it's been going on two or three weeks. Um, and there have been tremendous delays. I, I think um, the reporters covering it in the, you know, in the media room have completely lost track. But basically, the defense attorneys call for mistrial more than once a day. And it's it's stuff that has been admitted into other January 6th trials all the time. I mean, things like... Um, Things like uh, just speech, you know, like, yeah, what you say in advance of January 6th may represent your motive when you go to the Capitol and start busting down doors. And the Proud Boys don't want that stuff to come in, whereas other defendants have let it come in or it's come in without this big, you know, big case. And, and there are multiple reasons for that. I think the judge has gotten bullied by the defendants. This has been going on forever. I mean, it is it is a it is a complex case. Right. So the, the Proud Boys are charged um, with sedition, mm-hmm. uh, which is using force against the U.S. government. But they didn't have weapons that day. 
I mean, there are other Proud Boys who had weapons. So, like, there's a guy named Christopher Worrell. There's a bunch of Proud Boys who sprayed cops with mm-hmm. um, bear spray or, or pepper spray or what have you. So there are Proud Boys who are legitimately charged with assault. But most of the leaders um, aren't, to the extent that they're charged with assault, it's sort of just like fighting with the cops rather than actually punching a cop or spraying a cop or something like that. And the government's theory on their sedition case is that basically the Proud Boy leaders used, and they use this word tools, they used the other members of the crowd as tools to use force against the federal government. Now, if you read the Proud Boys uh, communications, even the day of, like they walked into that day, Nicole, saying, I want to see the normies, meaning the non-Proud Boys. I want to see the normies burn this city to dust. Wow. Okay, and so they conceived. They 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 like explicitly conceived of what they were doing, and they do this all the time. Like they show up, they instigate the crowd. The crowd starts fighting. They walk away. The crowd gets arrested. They don't. I mean, right. it's a, it's a way that they have. It's a very sophisticated way that they have of engaging in mob violence. But they did that on a large. I mean, the allegation is they did that on a large scale on January sixth. Um, And so it makes perfect sense if you read their communications and if you watch the videos, but that's all really difficult to get through uh, rules of evidence. I mean, just just quickly, like the rules of evidence allow you to get certain kinds of evidence in if you've charged a conspiracy. Like if you and I conspired, then what I say you're on the hook for what I said because we can. We're we're gotcha. alleged to have entered into a conspiracy. Same is true with these Proud Boys. They said a bunch of stuff, and so each other's claims, like what Joe Biggs said, is being used against Enrique Tarrio. Right. Uh, Enrique Tarrio is being held accountable, even though he wasn't at the January. He wasn't at the Capitol January sixth, in large part because of what he said. And because he had in, he's he allegedly entered in an agreement with the five people who were there, right. so that's how it works. The rules of evidence don't have a rule; the, 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 it's called the hearsay exception, mm-hmm. right? You know, so you get stuff in that otherwise wouldn't be admissible. There's not, as far as I know, a hearsay exception a, a, a hearsay exception for video. So, for example, if a proud boy was was brutally assaulting cops inside the tunnel which was the worst, most intense fighting, if a proud boy was, after having agreed that they were going to overthrow the government or agreed that they were going to obstruct the vote count, does that mean that Enrique Tarrio, who wasn't on site, or Joe Biggs, who was in an entirely different location of the Capitol, does that mean they can be held accountable for what that proud dope boy did in the tunnel? And those are the kinds of those are those are the kinds of questions that are legitimately holding up the case. And right. then there are all these endless defense cases. Now, now uh, you, you mentioned know, I have what, to say that okay. that that, that it, it, and then it, it's all made much more complex because. Um, it was a close hold. Like the allegation is only the top leaders knew what was going on, although also Alex Jones did. Um, and there were a number of informants and whether they were truthful or not, those informants didn't tell the FBI ahead of time of what was going on. Some of the informants were in an entirely different place. So it is a, it is a tremendously complex case. It's much harder to make than the Oath Keepers to the prosecutor's credit, they are working with a much thinner staff, at least on paper, than the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers had seven prosecutors. There are four in this case, same number of defendants. Um, And and just the legal issues are far more complex. But this case, if they do get guilty verdicts, then 
and and this is why I've been saying this for well over a year. This is a key cornerstone to the next level, and that's because uh, it is it is, and this is something that you can see in the January sixth committee report. Um, the Proud Boys and Alex Jones and Ali Alexander and Roger Stone were all very closely communicating in that time. Uh, Alex Jones, in particular. So right. if you if you like. Um, we know that somebody told Alex Jones he was going to lead the mob to the Capitol. We don't know precisely who it was. There are competing versions of that. Uh, it's not clear how many people at the White House Alex Jones was communicating with. It's not clear whether he was in communication with Trump. We know he was told he was leading the mob to the Capitol. We also know that as the mob was happening, the Proud Boys who were about to unleash this mob on the Capitol were communicating with Alex Jones. And people forget this, but Joe Biggs used to work for Alex Jones. Joe Biggs, of course he did. Joe Biggs is a former InfoWars guy, okay? These are really, really closely connected groups. And um, and there are moments you see from the video where, like, Joe Biggs, during the ride, is saying, uh, let me talk to Alex, or I'm Alex said, or, you know, so he's literally talking to Alex Jones as Alex Jones is bringing a mob down to the Capitol. Wow. There's this moment we know that Ali Alexander had Caroline Wren, he called, he, he texted Caroline Wren and said, please give me updates every five minutes about whether or not Trump is coming with us. So you had Ali Alexander in touch with uh, the Ellipse, who was with Joe Biggs, I mean, who was with Al- Alex Jones, who was in touch with Joe Biggs and the other people at the Capitol. Like, it, like right. that's how close this is. And to hold, I, you know, I, I've long thought that if they want to cha- charge Alex Jones and with him, you know, Owen Schroyer is kind of out there. He's been charged. He was going to plead. He's not pleading. Um, so uh, Alex Jones, Owen Schroyer, they've already gotten Owen Schroyer's phone, Ali Alexander and possibly Roger Stone. It, you know, if they're going to charge those four people, then they probably want to wait to see what happens with the Proud Boys case. So, you know, if they get a if they get guilty verdicts on sedition with the Proud Boys, then it's a lot easier to say, well, you know, Alex Jones was conspiring with these people who were just convicted of sedition. Right. And guess who was conspiring with Alex Jones? Who? Well, whoever at the White House told him he was going to lead him up. Gotcha. Okay, so it it goes all the way up. So there's all these tentacles that are interconnected. And again, how you keep it straight without a giant wall chart with, you know, strings going from one to another, I don't know. But now, since we last spoke, we also heard of some convictions and sentences (laughs) handed down in some of the on some of the the insurrectionists i don't call them rioters because i don't think it was a riot um the guy including the guy who you mentioned the people who were spraying the chemical the bear spray the one guy who it 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 seen sprayed officer brian sicknick who died the next day and he got hit with like a seven-year sentence now are they connecting him with the proud boys or as part of this larger conspiracy or or no sicknick as far as we know has no connection Okay. Um, there are other people who are more important who, um, how to put this. Um, so let me, let me talk about another guy, a guy by the name of Jeremy Liggett. Um, okay. So, so sorry, let me take a step back. Um, we know that the Cowboys in Florida, the Oath Keepers in Florida, Roger Stone and some other militia members in Florida, we know they were all chatting together. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's an interesting thing. Like we, like there was already evidence in the Oath Keepers case of they, they showed the video, uh, I mean, like uh, they showed the video in the Oath Keepers case of uh, Stuart Rhodes meeting with Tario the day after Tario got released from jail before he has to leave D.C. Um, in the Proud Boys case, they showed more of that video because they had the they had the documentarian show up. And they almost showed a piece of video with somebody off camera, it's not clear whom, saying, uh, we got to do this now. We got to go big now. And the Proud Boys were challenging admission of it. uh, And so it was not admitted, but it's there. And it's really interesting. It's really interesting footage. So we know that the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were in in communication. We know that Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, Roger Stone are all in the middle of that. There's this guy named Jeremy Liggett, who was in charge of a small three percenter group in Florida. Um, when he testified to the January 6th committee, he said that he didn't have ties to these groups and denied that his group was a militia altogether. Turns out that um, Kelly Meggs, one of the one of the Oath Keepers who was who was found guilty of sedition, was in communication with him. They were in, they were in communication about January 6th. But the other thing about Jeremy Liggett is there was a bunch of things, but one of the interesting things about Jeremy Liggett is he had ties to the, to the Kramers, the, the bus tour people. Okay. So he had ties to the people who were doing security for the bus people tour, including Dustin Stockton. Remember that guy? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So Dustin Stockton has ties to him. So you're being, you're actually beginning to see these networks more closely combined. Another guy is this guy, Garrett Ziegler, who was a Peter Navarro aide, whom Ali Alexander said he had ties to. Um, so you're seeing networks like that. As for all the other people on site, DOJ, I think, is still there. There, there are networks of conspiracies, most of which aren't all that important to invest energy in. Like, for example, there's a there's a conspiracy in Southern California, which is very interesting. Um, because it, one, because it's anti-vax, mm-hmm. it's anti, you know, it's, it's anti-masker. Right. So it's not a traditional militia conspiracy, but the other reason it's interesting is because although there is a three percenter tie to it, one of the other reasons it's interesting is because one of the guys is part of that conspiracy, a guy by the name of Danny Rodriguez, who by the way, was, um, was radicalized as a huge number of these people were by Infowars. But Danny Rodriguez is the person who almost killed Michael Fanon. Okay. Oh, by tasing him. Yep. He is the guy who's tasing immediately preceded Michael Fanon's heart attack. And so that conspiracy, the way in which DOJ is doing these conspiracies is they all network together. And to a large degree, Trump can be held accountable to these conspiracies. And if he is, then he can be held accountable to the things that these conspiracies do. So in the Oath Keepers case, he could be held accountable for the for the. for the arsenal that they literally had in anticipation that Trump would call them to use it. He can be held accountable for the Proud Boys who waited for Alex Jones to bring bodies so that they could assault the Capitol. There's another set of three that I love who whose names don't matter at all. I mean, they're just guys who met online and they bought a bunch of weapons from Amazon and then they went to D.C., but um, but they literally believed that Trump ordered them on December 19th to come to D.C., 
And they literally, you know, they responded to Trump's calls about Mike Pence. They, you know, they, they believed they were responding to, to Mike Pence. And they, um, two of them, performed utterly critical assaults to open the Senate and to open the East Door, where, by the way, uh, Alex Jones had brought them up. Right, and, right. and where, by the way, the Oath Keepers and Joe Biggs were waiting to get in. So... So, um, so they're totally random dudes. You don't know them. It doesn't matter. But, um, but they are people who DOJ can show were following what they believe to be Trump's instructions, and 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 served an absolutely critical function in occupying the Capitol and occupying the Senate. And so that's kind of you know that that that's that's I think how DOJ is making sense of the mob that no one should be expected to understand like they but I, but I will say you asked and then I got distracted and didn't tell you half of what I could have said um, what is Jack Smith doing and one thing that some of Jack Smith's new prosecutors who were brought in from outside of DOJ uh, at least one of them sat down with the militia sat down with a conspiracy those prosecuting militia conspiracies and said what do you have and that tells you, because the way in which Garland scoped the special prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith is only in charge of stuff that happened away from the Capitol. Anything crime scene still is being done by the D.C. USAO. But Alex Jones was at the crime scene. Right. Joe Biggs was at the crime scene. So if you're going to tie Trump to Alex Jones and Joe Biggs, then you do need coordination between the people uh, prosecuting these conspiracies at the crime scene and the people, you know, in the Willard who are who are coordinating with them. So really complex, uh, really, you know, I think what what Jack Smith is is obviously doing is interviewing the people who can um, who can either substantiate her who might have exculpatory evidence about Trump setting up Mike Pence to be assassinated about um trump considering an actual insurrection about trump planning to bring the national guard as kind of a praetorian guard as he waltzed to the capitol and took it over on january 6th um and some of this i mean people need to understand that some of trump's flunkies have given what would be exculpatory testimony and doj needs to get that all under oath and see if those people continue to say that under oath. A lot of it's not credible, but nevertheless, they need to have it because that's the kind of thing that Trump would rely on to uh, to be acquitted if it comes sure. to that. Now, DOJ now has all of the January 6th committee stuff, the transcripts, the interviews, everything yes. they've been saying all along they wanted because the, the committee is now disbanded and they turned everything over, right? So Yes. So... We should, I guess, expect more action from the DOJ, but we have to we have to wait on that uh, until they get going. You still have complete confidence that Merrick Garland is dotting the I's and crossing the T's and doing what he needs to do to bring the, you know, the the, the charges to Trump or no? Um. I, like I'm not promising charges. I'm okay. promising that he's doing the things that you would need to do to move to charges. But you know, one of the reasons I pointed out about the Scott Perry thing is 
Um, there are six key players who are members of Congress. All of them will rely on speech and debate to avoid any scrutiny. There are, as I said, 25 key witnesses and or subjects who are lawyers. All of them, you have to, you have to go, you know, tiptoe through that evidence to make right. sure you don't violate attorney-client privilege, because if you do, the entire case is going to be thrown out. And so, um, so I assure you that there are reasons it's taking this much time. The other thing is that as far as we know, um, at least one of uh, Jack Smith's grand juries has been seems to be meeting twice a twice a week, or has different grand juries meeting twice a week. I mean, the idea is you've got to have the same grand jury here in the evidence because they're the ones who are going to make a case, um, and they're not, as far as we know, working full time. I think wow. they're you know they may be working two days a week, but if you have somebody like um, Ken Cuccinelli show up and testify for four hours, which I believe he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have um, first Pat Cipollone and then Pat Philbin testify between them for 10 hours to a grand jury, which they did, um, which was a very clever way of doing it, by the way, because uh, I think Pat Philbin is more forthcoming than Pat Cipollone. And by having them at the same time, they have the same lawyer, they can't compare notes, then uh-huh. you're, you know, uh, Pat Cipollone, I think, could be discomforted by that himself. That's a lot of time to present stuff to the grand jury. Yeah. And so there are, it doesn't, I know it doesn't, it doesn't make anyone more confident, but uh, there are reasons it takes a lot of time. The other thing that I suspect that Smith is doing is, you know, I keep talking about the difficulty of attorney-client privilege. That's, you know, what what Rudy Giuliani said to Trump is privileged. But whether Rudy Giuliani had a retention agreement with Trump is not privileged. Who was paying Rudy Giuliani and how is not privileged. Wow. And so that's something that public reports have said Smith is investigating, in part because money that Trump raised by saying he was going to fight voter fraud is now paying for these legal right for these lawyers and and that's of dubious legality and then you add in the fact that um you've got uh, so so i think that's one of the things that um smith is doing and, and by having the same special counsel doing the documents and the january 6th stuff you have somebody like alex cannon who looks like a hero on the gen on the document stuff who looks like he's obstructing Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony on the January 6th stuff, you can leverage those off of mm. each other. You have Molly, Molly Michael, who is the executive assistant who, um, who was very reticent in her testimony to the January 6th committee and represented by one of the lawyers who are sort of the combined front. Um, you have probably, she, I guarantee, was a critical witness in the document case. Right. Um, it seems she's gotten a new lawyer. It is highly likely that if one of Trump's staffers was actually handling classified documents and and making new documents with them, it was her. So you've got Molly Michael, who has some discomfort in the documents case. Is that going to make her more forthcoming? Or at the very least, is that going to lead her to hire a different lawyer who might advise her differently in the January 6th case? Yeah, I don't know how this will work, but these are the kinds of leverage that Jack Smith is now playing with and only playing with starting in October, by the way, because because January 6th committee decided they weren't going to share the transcripts. He could have started. DOJ could have started this earlier in July. Yep. Yep. 
DOJ could have started this in July and the January 6th committee decided they weren't going to play ball. And so um, that six month delay is 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 the committee's doing not. Gotcha. Yeah, that was frustrating. I don't didn't never understood why they didn't share. And if the goal is to get to the truth and investigate, why not? share with the other investigators. But this is a problem, Marcy Wheeler, is it not with overlap? For instance, and there's a couple of other topics I want to get to, and we're just talking about really January 6th here, but, you know, that's one element of huge scandals and investigations and things happening all at the same time. So you had the Justice Department this week reportedly, according to a report in The Atlantic, telling um, the FEC, for example, Back off of George Santos. Don't come at him with any election um, charges for now. Basically letting us know that justice is looking into him and they they don't want the uh, Federal Elections Commission to come in and muck up the waters when they're building a case. Is this sort of, um, you know, does this have something to do with that? Basically different investigative units trying to go after the same target? Um, with George Santos, yeah, but um, but we should fully expect that the that Queens is still investigating him and New York State is investigating him. Right. Those three entities can all investigate, and you wouldn't expect any of them to step on toes. One reason it's important that the FEC not get involved is they're only civil and. Uh, and it's run by a half and half committee, and, and Republicans refuse to hold a public, Republicans accountable. And frankly, you don't want. Um, you don't want the FEC then to, to see what you can get from George Santos. So it's great news that the FBI is big footing on the George Santos investigation. They should because they have the ability to do something with those charges. Mm-hmm. I think George Santos, so much of what he did is so apparently fraudulent that uh, that I you know it's it's easy to understand why that's something you can move on quickly, right? right? Especially because. You know, I, I talk about speech and debate. All of this happened before he was a member of Congress. That's right. So, you know, great. Do, you know, do what you can with George Santos. In the Trump case, in the January 6th case, so A, there are two separate investigations, two separate crimes. And what I was trying to say is that some witnesses in one in one criminal investigation, in what used to be a completely separate criminal investigation, which is almost certainly today a different grand jury. And, and you know, we don't know. When Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin go in, the journalists who see them go in that door don't, don't know. know whether they're each visiting two separate grand juries or whether they're visiting the same grand jury over the course of the day. We don't right. know that. Right. And since there are at least two going on, we can't tell why they're going. You know, Ken, when Ken Cuccinelli showed up the other day and they said, what are you, what are you being asked about? He said, I don't know yet. Right. <laughs> you know, we'll find out. Today, and he told you won't. At the end of the day. Right. Um, so what I'm saying is that for somebody like Alex Holder, somebody like Molly Michael, Somebody like Pat Cipollone, uh, somebody like um, Boris Epstein, somebody like uh, Christina Bob, all five of them are key players in both stories. But they have different exposure. Like Christina Bob did a really good job of keeping herself clean in the stolen documents case. Right. She, kept, right. she did a really good job of, of CYAing in the stolen documents case. Not so in January 6th. And so those that kind of tension may be very helpful to DOJ as they go forward. What happens, for example, in, you know, when Georgia, when when Fannie Willis announces charges, and I expect her to do so fairly shortly, um, 
that will make things a little bit more complicated with DOJ, but it, but, um, generally, um, states and the federal government can talk back and forth. Their states get precedence on state charges. Mm -hmm. So for example, Fannie Willis might announce her, her charges and then quietly, not publicly share all the grand, the special grand jury results with DOJ because they may be able to use some of that, uh, some of the activities that aren't specific to Georgia mm-hmm. in other states. Like sure. there are people who had a role in Georgia, but a bigger role in Pennsylvania. Georgia, the fake electors were illegal in a different way than they were illegal in in Nevada, where even the Trump people were like, wow, this Nevada, we're asking them, that's a big ask. And so it may be easier to charge Trump on the fake electors plot in Nevada than it is in Georgia because of the way the federal law, the federal and state laws intersect, but also because because of what the people who were working between Trump and the state's did right if that makes sense so those are all it's incredibly complex like i you know it's very easy to say yeah you know obviously trump broke the law but i don't think people are accounting for the amount of exculpatory evidence that you need to wade through right right? so even pat cipollone like pat cipollone everyone again the january 6th committee made him look like a hero when they had him when they showed his testimony but pat cipollone at one point uh told the committee that he believed that trump believed in fraud and Liz Cheney was this remarkable moment. Liz Cheney's like, tell me what you mean by that. And she nailed him. She hammered him such that he said, um, so that he backed off what was otherwise a very exonerating statement. But I can guarantee you that Pat Cipollone doesn't want to be a witness that puts Donald Trump <laughs> in jail. And and you're going to have to go to each of these people. I mean, even Mike Pence, uh, he did, he published something about what happened to him in the Wall Street Journal. And there's a part of that that is also uh, exculpatory, like where he describes Trump asking him to do something that is slightly different from what we know he was asked. Hmm. And if Trump called Pence at a trial and Pence repeated what he said to the Wall Street Journal, then it's going to help him. You know, and, and you can't you can't charge a former president unless you've nailed down all the potential exculpatory claims that he could rely on. And, right. and the gen, getting the January January six transcripts again six months later than DOJ really could have gotten them um, provides them a bunch of potentially exculpatory witnesses that they have to spend an entire day sitting down in front of a grand jury before they can move forward. It's just, they have to do it. That's, gotcha. That is how it, you build a case. It's, it's, it's the process. Now, um, we, we've already been talking for about almost 50 minutes, for about 45 minutes, and um, and we're talking mostly exclusively about January 6th, and I know everything's intertwined. There are connection, connective threads and everything. One thing we haven't talked about yet, and frankly, a story that I don't think has gotten enough coverage in the in the mainstream corporate media is the story about Charles McGonagall. Can you explain yeah. who he is and what the hell happened there? Well, look, I think he will continue to get coverage as we learn more about it. I just my my suspicion is so Charles McGonagall was um, in twenty. In 2014 was the special agent in charge in the Baltimore FBI office, which is only important because that means he was in charge of NSA, the uh, special agent in charge of counterintelligence and counter um, counter uh, counter espionage. So okay. the, the spying at the FBI, uh, the top 
FBI spying guy at NSA. And then he was moved into this weird role that, as I understand it, was totally dysfunctional, that was that was supposed to make it easier to coordinate between cyber, secure, cyber investigations and counterintelligence investigations. Didn't do a very good, did, like, that, that function didn't do a very good job for people who followed the Alpha Bank uh, allegations. You see that in the Michael Sussman case where those two parts of FBI don't work very well together. They don't help the investigation. The cyber guys blew that investigation and led the cyber intelligence people also to blow the investigation. So it was clearly something that needed to be fixed. McGonagall didn't fix it. But what's important for your listeners' purposes is McGonagall was not in a straight counterintelligence role in D.C. in 2016, which means he was not centrally involved in Crossfire Hurricane, which a lot Mm -hmm. of people think he was. He was not. And then in October, on October 5th of 2016, um, James Comey announced his promotion to lead counterintelligence in New York, special agent in charge for counterintelligence in New York. And that date is important is because, you know, we, we talk a lot about all the leaking, leaking out of New York in 2016 that hurt Hillary Clinton. A lot of that preceded October 5th, 2016, and certainly preceded when McGonagall moved there at the end of October 2016. So he's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, he was responsible for the anti-Hillary leaking. And I'm like, that's funny, because he wasn't in New York at the time that the leaks were coming out of New York. So he moves to New York um, sometime in 2017, starts an affair uh, with the woman whose last name I'm going to butcher, Guerrero, Alison Guerrero, Guerrero, who has ties to the New York law enforcement community. And possibly because he's having this affair, decides he needs to find some money. And he goes to this Albanian guy who used to be an Albanian intelligence and says, I need money, and starts doing things while still in the FBI. This is all alleged. Okay, alleged. So, but this is what the indictment alleges. Okay. Um, starts doing things with this Albanian guy that he doesn't disclose to the FBI, including, like, the most alarming thing that he does is he initiates an investigation into the political opponent of this Albanian guy. Another thing he does, by the way, in 2017, September 2017, um, is he advises the Albanian prime minister not to give contracts to Russian front front companies for oil contracts. So, you know, at least as, as far as September 2017, he is doing stuff that is opposed to Russia. Okay. In spring of 2018, he starts uh, what he claims or what there's evidence he claims to have believed. He starts to try and flip Oleg Deripaska. And this is something that the FBI tried to do over years, right? And especially like we know Bruce Orr, if anyone's heard that name, he, he was trying the same. I mean, for, for a long, uh, Chris, Christopher Steele's biggest error is not the dossier. It is that he was pitching Oleg Deripaska to DOJ in 2016. And as that, in that role, Oleg Deripaska was appearing to DOJ to be opposed to Paul Manafort at the same time he was in cahoots with Paul Manafort. So Oleg Deripaska, incredibly crafty dude, was working both sides at that point, and Christopher Steele was one of the points. But, you know, is it unreasonable for McGonagall to think he's going to flip Oleg Deripaska? No, no, because everyone was trying to do that at the time. Did the fact that he had this compromise that was publicly known to people in D.C., I mean, sorry, in New York, Okay, that was publicly known to one of the places he is alleged to have gone, which doesn't show up in his in his indictment, is um, is Montenegro, 
where Oleg Darpaska has an incredible network of sources. That's where him and Paul Manafort first got their start together. So uh, is it likely that Darpaska and his people learned about this affair he was having that led him to do really stupid things? Oh uh, I, I think probably. But anyway, wow. so in in spring 2018, he, he starts trying to flip Oleg Darpaska. He does some stupid stuff. He resigns from the, oh, by the way, uh, so he resigns from the FBI, and then he um, breaks off the affair he's having. Okay. And in response, in jealous response to breaking off the affair, the woman emails the head of FBI in New York and says, you got to look into McGonagall's ties to Albania and also our affair. Oh, my God. And that may be where that investigation actually started, the and then he, and then after he res, after he retires from the FBI, he continues to do work for all of Deripaska that is being charged as a FARA violation. So two different indictments: one um, which is largely about what he did at the FBI, which is actually being framed as a public integrity investigation with a counterintelligence twist, and the other one, which is more of a counterintelligence side, charged as FARA. Um, that have to do with his ties to all of and, and are associated with a bunch of things. New York's New York. Manhattan's federal prosecutors were trying to do with Oleg Deripaska. So those two things, um, I, you know, so I would say two things. One is, please don't get ahead of yourself on what you think Oleg Deripaska knew when he knew it, what he did. It is it is of grave concern what he told Oleg Deripaska, and I don't want to minimize that. But, you know, as I said, September 2017, we know he was doing anti-Russian stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to believe that he was sabotaging the Russian investigation in September 2017 because we know he was doing anti-Russian stuff. It's later, and and it is, and it it could well be. It, I might be wrong. It could well be that um, it came out of the same instinct that a lot of other people before him, including Christopher Steele, um, tried, which is to flip Oleg Deripaska, who they believed could be flipped. Um, that in conjunction with having had this affair. Right. In conjunction with having compromised himself with Albania and possibly in Montenegro, where, where like Deripaska has these great ties, that that made the Deripaska thing far, far worse. And then the, the ex-mistress told the FBI about it. Oh, and here's the best part. This yeah. is insane. Ready? Ready? Yeah. Ready. So in 2021, um, she lived with her dad, the mistress. And in 2021, her dad's uh, place had a fire and she was badly hurt and I'm you know I'm sorry for her that she was hurt I'm sorry that she was dumped I'm sorry that she really um she by the way she also was um basically stalking McDonald's family oh so my. they had protective they had uh, restraining orders against her in two states in in Maryland and New Jersey but anyway um so 2021 she's she suffers some burn injuries and so needs a place to stay because her dad's place has been has been burned guess where she stays I, I can't even. Where? No, because you won't even believe it. Mar-a-Lago. Rudy Giuliani's guest room. <laughs> oh, of course she did. Rudy Giuliani's guest room. Oh, my God. Rudy Giuliani's guest room. So one of the things that's important is this whole time that McGonagall is being cultivated by Oleg Deripaska, that's the same period that Rudy Giuliani is being cultivated by Russian spies, too. And and um, and this woman is common to both of the stories. So, oh, uh, my Okay, so there's yeah, so Rudy Giuliani's guest room. That's that's the that's the um, hilarious thing. Wow. Now we could end there, but I and then I just have to ask because there's all this overlap. Is there any connection between this McGonagall story and the Bill Barr John Durham 
stuff that's blowing up? Um, not necessarily the stuff that's blowing up. Uh, but remember that here's, here's the other thing that I find hilarious in the way that staying in Rudy J. Lyonnais guest room <laughs> is hilarious. McGonagall is being represented by a, by a guy named Seth Ducharme, Ducharme, who used to be one of Bill Barr's top advisors during the period when Bill Barr was taking extreme measures to protect Rudy Giuliani from the counterintelligence investigation to Rudy Giuliani. So basically what Bill Barr did starting in 2020 was halt the SDNY investigation into Rudy Giuliani, farm that out to EDNY, um, where Richard Donahue, who became a hero in the January 6th committee investigations, was, uh, allow Rudy to share dirt on Hunter Biden in Pittsburgh in addition to an existing Delaware investigation into Hunter Biden. So you've got this investigation in four places, dirt from Russian spies in Pittsburgh, stuff obtained up by other means in Delaware, counterintelligence investigation into Rudy Giuliani in Manhattan, and counterintelligence investigation into the Russian spies who were cultivating Rudy Giuliani across the river in, 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 in Brooklyn. That's where you've got it. But Seth Ducharme was literally at the center of that. Like he was the guy interacting with Pittsburgh. He, after Richard Donahue may have balked at some of what Rudy, what, what uh, Barr was asking, Seth Ducharme got put into Brooklyn to oversee this investigation of the guy who was cultivating Rudy Giuliani. You get the point. Seth Ducharme mm-hmm. on our taxpayer bill was protecting Rudy Giuliani. He's doing, was in the middle of Bill Barr's schemes to do a bunch to protect Rudy Giuliani. Guess who is representing McGonagall, Seth Ducharme, (laughs) whose ex-mistress stayed in the guest room of Rudy Giuliani. Wow. So those are the kinds of ties that are of interest. It's not that he, you know, passed a document in the the Crossfire Hurricane investigation in 2016. It's the Seth Ducharme role. It's the Rudy Giuliani role. Those are the things that I think are more interesting. Wow. And, And they are interesting. And how you keep them straight again, I don't know. Maybe, do you have a photographic memory or something? Because you're able to compartmentalize them and and pull up with amazing recall i i'm i'm forever in awe marcy willer well i wrote them up so once i write them up then it becomes a lot easier there you go and it's written up at emptywheel.net it should be on your morning reading uh itinerary every day uh marcy willer i can't thank you enough uh there's more we could keep going but you know the the clock is is saying it's time to go thank you as always uh until next time marcy wheeler EmptyWheel.net. Thanks, She's just the best. Marcy Wheeler, and I can't thank her enough for her time, her expertise. She's incredible. EmptyWheel.net. You should be reading it every day, and here's the thing. Marcy does her uh, thing, I was going to say her show, writes, does all this in great journalism, uh, and she is not behind a paywall. She runs EmptyWheel.net the same way I run the Nicole Sandler show. Um, no paywall. You don't have to, but but we both survive uh, thanks to your your support. So go over there and support her if you can. Okay. Um, and as, while we're talking about support, I today during the show enjoyed a delicious smoothie. Again, I'm perfecting the blueberry frozen blueberries with uh, yogurt with um, plain vegan yogurt made from uh, almond milk 
um, some ice, a little bit of ice, a little bit of, of plant-based milk, uh, and just a tiny touch of stevia blended in my blend jet too. And this thing is so good. So I brought it in here while, uh, watching the video of the tape that the recording of the interview that we did this morning that I did with Marcy Wheeler. So anyway, this blend jet thing, it's so convenient. You could take it with you wherever you go. You can pack it up with your ingredients, put it in a cooler bag that they also have available. And a couple hours later at work, when you're ready, take it out, hit the button in about 20 seconds, it blends 20 seconds. It blends into this delicious, um, uh, smoothie. And then th it comes out great. It really does. So, oh, thank you, Gloria in the chat room, who's just said uh, she just got one. Al G says, I'm addicted to ice cream. You can, you can put ice cream in the, in the blend jet and make your own sort of um, milkshakey drinks. I, I, I'm loving this thing. I'm really having a good time with it. And now you can get one and get 12% off. If you enter the promo code sent by Nicole 12, all one word, just all lowercase, sent by Nicole 12 at blendjet.com. Blendjet.com. You put in sent by Nicole 12, you get 12% off and free two-day shipping. So they have all kinds of different colors available. It's uh, And it makes a great gift. We have Valentine's Day coming up in two weeks, you know? So just saying. Anyway, uh, check it out. Get blendjet.com, sent by Nicole 12 in the promo code slot, and you get 12% off and free two-day shipping. All right. With that, we're done. Tomorrow is Thursday. Um, well, Howie Klein will be here. Lots to talk about. So much happened today. I, 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 but I'm on information overload with Marcy. So we'll save it till tomorrow. Just know that Ron DeSantis got his way with that damn um, AP African-American curriculum. They gutted it. I'll have all the details tomorrow. All right. In the meantime... I'll leave you with the news and thank you for listening. Leaders and oops, humble. oops. Where? Uh oh. Well, let's see. Where is that coming from? Maybe it's coming from here. No. Okay. Leaders oops. And nope. Uh, I <laughs> I have audio coming back from uh, here and uh, let's see. All right. Now it's gone. Okay. Now I can leave you with the news. All right. See you tomorrow, everyone. Bye. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome to February. Black History Month begins as the family of Tyree Nichols says goodbye. Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, father, skateboarder, and photographer who worked at FedEx, was savagely beaten to death three weeks ago by a gang of Memphis police officers from the specialized so-called elite Scorpion unit, which had been formed to fight violent street crime. Nichols' family invited Vice President Kamala Harris to attend the funeral when they spoke with her yesterday. Also expected at the funeral are Breonna Taylor's mother and George Floyd's brother. Al Sharpton will deliver the eulogy. Nichols' parents are also set to attend President Biden's State of the Union address next week, after being invited by the Congressional Black Caucus. They're looking to meet with the president to push for police reforms. Also today, on the first day of Black History Month, the College Board released its updated official curriculum for the new Advanced Placement course in African American Studies. And it's now stripped of much of the subject matter that Florida's fascist governor, Ron DeSantis, subjected to, prompting the overhaul. 
In January, DeSantis announced that he'd ban the curriculum, saying that it had no educational value. Well, this new version of the course has been watered down a lot. The College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with so-called critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. And they removed topics like Black Lives Matter from the formal curriculum. But they added black conservatism as an idea for a research project. While this is disturbing on a national level, down here in Florida, it's just a prelude to DeSantis's larger agenda. On Tuesday, he unveiled a proposal to overhaul higher education in the state. And he's dismantling Florida's new college, which provided a haven for LGBTQ plus students. Fascist enough for you yet? Also happening today, the first meeting between President Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy in his role as Speaker of the House. The meeting ostensibly to open discussions about increasing the nation's debt ceiling. But McCarthy and his House Republican allies want steep cuts to domestic programs and to trim defense spending while pulling back on their threats to cut Medicare and Social Security. Meanwhile, White House officials insist that they will not negotiate with House Republicans on the need for Congress to avoid the first ever debt default, potentially by the summer. This is going to get uglier before it gets any better. And then there's the case of George Santos, or whatever his actual name is, who announced Tuesday in a closed-door meeting with House Republicans that he temporarily stepped down from his assigned committees pending the outcome of ethics issues and criminal investigations. Sure. Meanwhile, Santos sat for an interview with the far-right organization OAN. I didn't know they were still around. And the noted liar (laughs) said this. I don't think lying is excusable ever, period. Right. There's no circumstance, especially if you're legislating for the American people right now. So what I might have done during the campaign does not reflect what is being done in the office. Now you understand the theory of opposite world? No. After a week-long campaign of lobbying by McCarthy to persuade some of his caucus members, the House is now on a path to oust Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Republicans now say they have the votes after convincing Representative Victoria Sparts of Indiana to support an amended resolution kicking Omar off the committee. It was just last week that Sparts protested she would not do that. If Kevin McCarthy has some concerns, we have an ethics committee. You know, he needs to make his accusations and these people, you know, have to make their case. I'm not defending them. I'm not, my opinions with them on a lot of issues are night and day. I want to defend the due process of this institution because we're becoming like a theater full of actors in the circus and it's unacceptable. We have to govern for the people and it's not happening here. With their very slight majority, Republicans can afford to lose only three votes. Anyway, they called an emergency meeting on Tuesday to quickly approve a rule, a necessary step before holding the vote on a resolution condemning Omar and removing her from the committee. But the timing of the vote remains uncertain simply because the House cannot remove a member who hasn't been formally tapped to serve on that committee. Democrats, meanwhile, are in no rush to formally sit members on the committee now that Republicans have rushed to ready the process to remove a member. And when do they get down to the business of working for the American public? Just a rhetorical question. 
From the Here We Go Again files, the Fed is predicted to boost interest rates for an eighth consecutive time today, but only, only, they tell us, by a quarter point. That's down from the half-point hike in December and the four consecutive three-quarter percentage point increases before that. But come on already. Consumers have already felt the impact of these rate hikes and are already reeling. Economists are split on whether the Fed will pause its rate hikes after this week. I vote yes. Stop it already. Unfortunately, nobody asked me. And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener supported, and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com. And please click on one of those donate buttons.